You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you, Ms. Zoom. All right, well, welcome tonight to our next session in our class on Reshape. Reminder that uh, the theme of this class is how the reality of Jesus Christ reshapes every aspect of life. And every aspect. And when we say every aspect, we mean every aspect, including the area that we're going to be looking at tonight. Uh, Tonight we're going to be looking at how the gospel of Jesus Christ can reshape how we look at politics. So I think we should probably begin with prayer. Yeah, we do need to pray, so let's pray together. God of all grace, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness. And thank you um, for your wisdom and for your guidance. And thank you that you are sovereign over all things. You are our refuge and our strength. You are a very present help in times of trouble. And so we will not be afraid. And we do pray that you would speak to us tonight as we explore what your reality has to do with the political realm. So guide us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we uh, left our story, and I I, I apologize a little bit. I, I, I don't apologize, but I recognize last week was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, we, we covered 2,500 years of intellectual history and looked at how we got to now. So I get it, I get it. That, that was a lot, but I think it was important. And uh, it's, it's something to go over if, you, if you're still trying to figure out how we got to now and you're not quite sure of all the pieces. Because we record this class, it may not be a bad thing to go over this um, again, because uh, to know how we got to now really is helpful. It really is helpful. Um, it, it, it teaches us how ideas come about and how ideas are related to other ideas. And that way we're not always surprised when we see things materialize in our culture. We don't get thrown off and say, well, where did this come from? But if you have a larger context, you kind of have an idea of how things relate to one, uh, one thing to another. So when we left our story last week, we, we got all the way up into a, the, the late modern, postmodern uh, context. And one of the things we noticed about uh, a postmodern context is um, the disappearance of transcendent values. So basically, in a postmodern world, Gene, you have your truth and I have my truth and you do you and I do me and truth is relative and truth is personalized because this idea of a meta-truth, this idea of an overall truth, well, we see the trouble that that causes. How many wars were started because of, you know, these, these, these ideologies, these, these, these truths that supposedly go over all things. And so instead of doing that, let's just have our own personal private truth and you do you and I'll do me. But it doesn't quite work that way. Um, one of the problems with a d- disappearance of transcendence 
is that what happens when you and I disagree with each other? So Mike, you and I disagree with each other. If we can't appeal to this idea of truth that's somehow out there, or goodness that's somehow out there, or, or anything that's out there, if it's just all interiorized, it's your personal truth and my personal truth, when we bump into each other, how do we navigate that? Well, the way we navigate it in our cultures is through power. And, through po and the language of power is the language of politics. And so we are faced with two problems right from the get-go. One is our world is thoroughly politicized. And increasingly, everything is being mediated through power. The second problem is this, is that as Christians, we don't really know how to think about politics and power. Um, and so it leads us to, to some important questions. What are some questions? What, if anything, does Christianity have to say about politics and the right ordering of society? What political responsibilities do I have as a Christian? How do I conduct myself publicly? How involved do I get? How do I get involved? What do I do? What does my Christian faith have to say about what I do? How do we think about, let me think of an example, a trucker's convoy or an emergency act? So this is what we're going to be looking at tonight. It will be fun. A few things as we embark on this conversation. One, we commit to be civil towards one another. All in favor? Aye. All right. The eyes are above the nose. That's good. Um, so I'm going to be keeping a close eye, and so is Mike, on our chat function. <laughs> we cannot let it descend into a Twitter war. Uh, I know it won't. Uh, the other thing is we need to tolerate one another in the true sense of the word. Toleration, it doesn't mean I agree with you. It means I respect your freedom to disagree with me. That's okay. That's what true tolerance means. But as Christians, we go one further than that. We don't just tolerate one another. We love one another because we're the church. And the most important thing to re remember tonight is, is to be kind to your teacher. Okay, so here we go. <laughs> All in favor, boo. No, okay. Okay, so there's many ways we can frame this conversation. I'm proposing we frame it in three ways tonight. Three ways. First, what we're going to do is briefly, and I say briefly, um, explore five ways the church has typically looked at faith and politics. Okay? Believe it or not, we're not the first people tonight to think about this. There has been a lot of ink spilled on this topic. Secondly, we're going to look at the characteristics of the modern state. Because there are some characteristics of the modern state that we need to take into consideration. Thirdly, we're going to offer some thoughts as to how we can approach politics as Christians today. What can go wrong? Nothing. Okay. So let me begin by asking you a question. I probably won't get you to answer it, but I want you to think about it. If you had the opportunity to impose 
a Christian regime on Canada, would you do it? Is this desirable? I want like to, to make Canada a fully Christian country. Is that a desirable thing? Ah, what do you mean by Christian regime? That's a good question. Whenever you impose something, it becomes a tyranny, like a theocracy. Okay, not if you're imposing it. Okay, so those are good thoughts. That's something just to keep in the back of your mind, because sometimes it's like, well, we need to make... Well, we wouldn't say this, but we may say it. We need to make Canada good again, not great again, right? Um, but is it that simple? Yeah. What I want to do is look at five ways. I mean, Christians have thought about this over the years, over the centuries. And typically, it falls into five categories. Five categories for the way Christians have looked at church and politics. Let me begin with the first one. The first viewpoint is called the early church view, uh, which is a sectarian view. And what frames this is a, um, a couple passages in the Bible, a number of passages. Uh, what are some passages? The, the famous one, Romans 13, Paul writes, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. That is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. So give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. It's appropriate in March, right? Um, or in almost in March. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Okay, so that's quite a well-known passage. Another passage that is taken into consideration is a passage found in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 says this. The apostles were brought in and were made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. Okay? So the early church tried to walk a line between, yeah, and, and First Peter, I can see, yeah, Mike, that's, that's helpful too, yeah. Um, the early church was committed to walking the line between Romans 13 and Acts 5 and a number of other passages. 
And in the early church, in the, uh, you know, in the first couple centuries, where, wherever the Romans would look, or wherever the Christians would look, they would see the Romans. They would see signs of Rome. Um, and, and, and they would see very clearly where power and where glory resided. It resided in Rome, and it resided with the emperor, who was Kaiser et Curious. Caesar is Lord, right? And it became politically dangerous to show allegiance to Jesus in, a, in the Greco-Roman world. So, how does the church navigate this? Well, they navigated it by being very careful. They thought carefully about it. And one of the things they practiced, and we talked about this in, in, um, in previous classes, one of the things that you don't see in the first few hundred years of, of church history is you don't see a lot of treatises on how to overthrow the Roman Empire. You don't see a treatise to say how to say no to those rotten Romans. And you don't see a lot of treatises on even how to reach your pagan neighbor for Christ. What you do find are treatises on patience. Interesting. On patience. The early church talked a lot about patience. They believe that God is patient. Jesus demonstrates patience. But what is the good of patience when you're under pressure? <laughs> well, here's the thing. They saw that impatience is never the way of Jesus. Early church philosopher Tertullian said, impatience led to hopelessness. This is what he writes. Now, nothing undertaken through impatience can be transacted without violence. Everything done with violence has either met with no success or has collapsed or plunged into its own destruction. That's quite interesting. He's writing this in the second century. So why is patience so important? We've talked about this before. Patience is rooted in God's character. God is slow to anger, bounding in love, right? It's revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ at the right time. Jesus was sent into this world. Patience is a way of resisting um, um, hurry sickness. When you're patient, you're not going to manipulate. You're not going to manipulate outcomes if you're patient. When you're impatient, you do whatever you can to manipulate the end that you want. Patience is countercultural. It's, and, and the other thing about patience is that patience is not violence. It's not violent. Revolutions tend to be violent. Patience promotes freedom. It allows you to change rather than saying, okay, Mike, come on, be, be sanctified. Come on, man, get going. No, patience is like, I can give you a bit of space, right? I'll give you a day. No, I'll give you a little bit of time. And patience is hopeful. Because when you're patient, you say, our hope ultimately lies in God's hands. Okay? And I have in your notes, we're not going to go through it, but there's a famous letter to a guy named Diognetus, dated from the second century, which describes the way Christians interacted with society as a whole, including the government. So, what does this mean? When you look at the early Christians, you see that they don't engage routinely in civil disobedience. But when the freedom to proclaim Christ was at stake, they did. They did. 
Um, but they, they, they would, they would um, defy the authorities while at the same time recognizing these authorities are mysteriously ordained by God. And for Paul and for Peter, and we looked at that, we looked at this when we explored 1 Peter last year, the call of the Christian was basically to go through his life or her life, go about their business and avoid civic disruption as much as possible while maintaining a posture of hope. I think that's what you see in the early church. Now that's one perspective, right? What we're going to do now is we're going to look at, yeah, okay, that's good, Jonathan. What, it leads to a great question. What do we define as a freedom for, to proclaim Christ? Where is that line drawn? Oh, very good. That's a very good. Um, I'll expect the full answer, Jonathan, in a moment. Um, okay, so that's one. That's the first one. Right? That's the early church view, the sectarian view. Let's look at the one that held sway for about a thousand years, and that's the synthesis. That's easy for me to say. The synthesis view, uh, also known as Christendom. Now, here's a shocker. Our man Thomas Aquinas has something to say about this. Thomas Aquinas has something to say about everything, which is okay because he's pretty smart. Um, so what does he have to say? Well, he has something to say about politics. For Aquinas, politics is part of life. Where there are humans, there, are po there is politics. If you work in an office, you know that's the case, right? And for Aquinas, he says, politics needs, needs to be understood within a larger, larger picture. And for Aquinas, he would say, you know what? In this world of ours, there are four laws that are at work. Here are the four laws. They all have to do with God. There's God's eternal law. These are the, this is the way God, from the very beginning, has ordained the universe to work in this way. And, he, and it operates by by these eternal laws that can never be changed. When you look at the world, you'll see natural laws. There's different, you know, just in, in the way um, human beings relate to one another, uh, different things within the world. There are natural laws that point to who God is and they kind of reflect these eternal laws. So you got these eternal laws, then you look at the world, there's these natural laws and the way things work in the world. And then from there, you have human laws. Now, here's the thing. A human law, the laws that we make up, need to reflect God's natural law, which reflect his eternal law. You see, if everything's in sync, then that will lead to the flourishing of society. And then finally, there's divine law. That's church law. And, the, and so how the church uh, sets itself up needs to reflect these eternal laws of God. So basically, it's all these laws working together. They're God-ordained. And when they work, when they work, then society will flourish. So human laws can't just be willy-nilly laws that I'm going to make up. No. If I'm going to make a human law, it's going to have to be rooted in, for example, a human law must uphold the dignity of every human being. Why? Because every human being was created by God in his image. 
And so the law, the human law, needs to reflect what is true. Right? It all has to be in sync. And if everything is in sync, if everybody's working together, society will flourish. And the goal, the goal of a political leader, the goal of a leader in every society is not just to control these people, but the goal of a political leader is to make a society good and to make people virtuous. It's all about God's goodness being reflected in society. Okay? So there needs to be a synthesis between these four laws. And when the synthesis happens, that's good. And, and that idea of Christendom, Christendom is the idea of, of Christianity and the church affecting every aspect of society from human law to everything, held sway in Europe, in Western Europe, for about a thousand years. So it had a long run. The third one is the two kingdom view, and that comes from our man Martin Luther in the 16th century. And Luther, what Luther emphasized, if you remember your reformational history, is that he emphasized grace. Grace is important. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. And so grace really matters. And so the doctrine of grace reminds us that we are not saved by human efforts, but we are saved by grace. And so here's the thing for Luther. Politics will never make a great society because the law will never do what grace can do. We need God's amazing grace. Politics will never achieve what God through his amazing grace can accomplish. And so when you look at the political process, you have to, uh, you, you can't expect too much from it. That's what Luther would say. You can't expect a lot from the political process. Um, and so the Lutheran approach to politics is like, let's be realistic about this. Let's be realistic. I mean, there's only so much that we can do through politics to make society really good. There's, there's going to be limits. And the purpose of the church in, for Luther is very clear. The purpose of the church is to teach grace. It's to teach the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's to proclaim the gospel and to gather people around the body of Christ, transformed by the Holy Spirit. The church is not a political actor. When the church starts behaving like a political actor, it's in trouble. When the church acts like a special interest group for political purposes, it's in trouble. It's stopped being the church. The church needs to listen to its calling and to be the church. You with me so far? Okay. Now, for Luther, he says, the thing is, though, in this world, you had the realms of grace and the law of law and grace in the Bible. And law and grace reflect two ways to bring order to this world. God rules in two distinct ways. There are two kingdoms at play. 
There's the church and there's the state. There's the law, there's the gospel. And the law, what is the law for? The law is God's instrument to sustain and order the world and to mitigate the effects of the fall, right? Part of the issue of the fall is that people are doing things they shouldn't do and they're not doing things that they ought to do. You get people killing each other, you get people robbing each other, violating all the Ten Commandments. And so what the law, what the, what the state does is the state tries to mitigate all hell breaking loose, right? tries to protect people from each other. And that's what Dr. Proven was saying during the conference. He says, oh, that's what the law is for. It's primarily negative, right? So, it, 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 it knows that we're sinful, and so the law mitigates the effects of sin. So the law is not interested in producing virtue. That's the job of the church. The church is about making us good, living in grace and all that. The law, the state... It's all about stopping us from killing each other, okay? But the law can also teach us justice, right? You think about the law in the Old Testament, teaches us the ways of God, the ways of justice. The law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? Includes the moral teaching of the church. And so the state will operate according to the law. Now, so what does that mean? Well, that means, Norm, if you are a judge in a Lutheran state and somebody comes into the courtroom and is very clear that they're guilty, it would be wrong of you to turn the other cheek and forgive him. That would be wrong because in this kingdom of the law what matters is justice and you need to mitigate the effects of sin and so if norm says but i'm a christian i need to turn the other cheek no no, no. that's the realm of the church you are you are a judge in the state and so you have to operate by a different set of rules different kingdom different rules and so it would be morally wrong for you actually to to turn the other cheek and to forgive, which is weird because they're two separate realms. They're two kingdoms and they operate di distinctly. One is more about justice and mitigating violence. The other one is about grace and being transformed and living in the life of the spirit. But one is church and one is state. And that's in every society. You have to have those two things at work. Now, ultimately, in time, hopefully, all everybody in the state will come to, the, come to faith in Jesus and will be part of the church and be transformed into virtuous citizens. That's, that's the goal someday. But realistically, it's probably not going to happen. So in the meantime, we have to have these two kingdoms at work. You with me? Okay. What's the problem with this? Can you see any potential problem? There's fallibilities on both sides. The church really doesn't do its part perfectly, and the law certainly doesn't do it. So neither side does things very well, yeah. Um, restorative justice. Yeah, so there's, yeah, yeah. And that would be, 
probably more retributional justice in, in, in this idea, is that the justice corresponds to the, to the nature of the, of the crime. Here's the issue. No, I know, but I'm talking about in this, in this schema, this is how it works, yeah. Um, the issue is, and if you know your history from World War II, where did the Nazis emerge? In which country? In Germany. And what did the church say about Hitler when he was rising to power? Well, at first they were kind of on board because uh, Hitler seemed like a family-friendly type of guy, you know, let's make Germany great again. That's actually what he, that is what he was saying. Um, the problem was, is when he started doing things against the church or against the Jews or against whatever, the church had no voice. Because if it spoke up and said, you can't, ah, 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 ah. Different kingdom, different rules. You do your church thing over there, and the Nazis and our this new National Socialist Party will do their political thing. You do your thing, I'll do our thing, and different kingdoms, different rules. And so for the large part, the Lutheran pastors went, went along and didn't say anything really didn't say anything like there's a confessing church Bonhoeffer and that but that was a very small small uh, minority group and part of it goes back to this two kingdom model and, and so that's one of the challenges with it on one hand it sounds kind of reasonable but on the other hand there are some flaws with it okay so let's get to the third one any Mennonites in the house <laughs> I see that hand <laughs> just one what kind of alliance church is this? Okay, let's see. Any any Mennonites in the in the Zoom house? <laughs> Still, Mike. <laughs> oh, there's Don. Yeah, yeah, Don. Yeah, you're a couple Mennonites. Boy, how the church has changed. The alliance used to be Christian and Mennonite Alliance Church um, back in the day. So the Mennonite view, or the Anabaptist view, the separatist view, is a third view, and um, this. The key word is separate. <laughs> Separation is, is the key word here. To the Anabaptists, to the, to the Mennonites, civil government, <laughs> that's got nothing to do with the Christian life. The believer belongs to God's kingdom, not to the government. And the government and the church ne'er the twain shall meet. They are separate realms. They, we should have nothing to do with the government. The Christian ought not to hold any rank or fill any government office. Why? Because the moment you get messed up in politics, it's going to mess your walk with Jesus. It just will. And so for the believer, the government is to be, yes, is to be passively obeyed, Romans 13, except where obedience would violate God's laws and our, my ability to follow Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, a Christian typically may not swear an oath to resolve a dispute or would, wouldn't, wouldn't turn to the courts even to, to resolve disputes. 
In fact, they would, as much as possible, have little to do with the secular world as, as, as they could. This, the separatist view holds that Christians are to live in the world, but not be of it. They are to be in their communities, not isolated like monks, but they, they would be salt and light in the community to point people to Jesus. And so, for an Anabaptist, there's no sense getting caught up in the wars between states, so typically they would be pacifist and would not go to war, would not fight in, in, in wars, would not bear arms. Um, some would uh, have argue for separate school systems. If you go to Abbotsford, you see that's alive and well there. Um, lots, of, lots of private schools in Abbotsford. <laughs> Uh, intentional communities to encourage one another to stay pure. Some, some versions of the Anabaptists are even down on technology. Uh, most Mennonites aren't anymore. Um, a refusal to serve in an uh, occupation that may involve violence. A refusal to take public office or work in the government. And for some, a refusal to vote. Don, is that close, Don Krause? Would that be pretty close? Yeah. And probably a modern extrapolation of this is, is actually done by an Eastern Orthodox fellow named uh, Rod Dreher when he wrote his book, The Benedict Option, because his argument is the church, it's, it's, the political system is so messed up that it'd be best for the church to strategically withdraw for a little while, kind of reset, re-engage, re-educate it before um, engaging in the world again. Right? How's that sound? Well, I mean, there's a lot of people, like, and not even Mennonites. I was reading uh, my man John Newton the other day, and Newton gets to the point where he says, you know what? Politics is so corrupt, I'm not even sure any Christian should have anything to do with politics. The challenge with it is, 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 is to say that there are major sectors of society where the reality of Jesus cannot touch. So what would you do with a guy like William Wilberforce, who worked with Parliament to bring about the abolition of the slave trade? Would we say to William Wilberforce, no, 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 just stay out of politics, stay away, just live a... And that's what he wanted to do but he's encouraged to go in. So are there sectors that are off limits to Christians? Okay. So that's one of the questions. It could mean that there'd be no Christian influence on society, but I think an Anabaptist would say, no, we would, but we're going to do it from kind of a grassroots perspective. By living our lives as Jesus would, people will see it, and be drawn to Jesus. And that's what really matters, is the church and walking with Jesus and not getting sucked into the way of the world because that will just corrupt the soul. And you cannot walk with Jesus and serve in parliament at the same time. You just can't. The way politics is, maybe, maybe they're not far from the truth. Let's look at the last one. The last one is kind of the reform view, the transformationist view, which is a little bit different. Uh, the transformationist view uh, 
would say that, um, that the reality of Jesus, the fam famous line by uh, the Reformed Prime Minister, the Netherlands, uh, Abraham Kuyper, in the early 20th century, he says, there's not a square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Meaning, if Jesus is Lord of all, that must mean he's Lord of the political realm as well. It's, it's, there's nothing that's out of bounds to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so, and so uh, for, for the Reformed perspective, they would say the reality of Jesus needs to affect everything, everything, every aspect of life. They would argue for the value of ordinary life. Ordinary life means every part of our life can be submitted to Jesus. That includes the realm of politics and the government. All of life is to be lived quorum Deo, before the face of God. And so in the marketplace, the political life, the family, whatever it happens to be, we need to bring Jesus's we, we need to bring Jesus' power and his presence, and you and I, wherever we find ourselves, need to have a faithful presence and transform wherever we find ourselves. That's why it's called the transformist, transformationist view. The, the Christian is to seek shalom in the world, seek peace in the world, and you do that in whichever realm, including politics. Politics is something we can create. It's not dropped down from heaven. When we live a faithful presence, when we live with an idea to God, who he is, his goodness and his justice, we can participate in the political realm and transform it for the good and bring about good. Bring about good laws and transform, uh, transforming society that way. Okay? Our political makeup to uh, the reforms uh, in the reform movement our political makeup matters, and we need to think carefully about this. We also need to be realistic, because as Christians, we believe in Genesis 3, that this world has fallen, right? And so we need to recognize that there's never going to be the perfect political system, but wherever we find ourselves, let's have a faithful presence to transform things. Recognizing the world that we live in, things are not the way they're supposed to be. There's sin in this world, and that's okay, we, we need to know that. And the role of the Christian is to make the best of things. Think about that. To make the best of things. Wherever we find ourselves to make it better. And, and that could look, and so in the Reformationist, uh, or the, um, sorry, the uh, Transformationist view, um, you would argue for, for pluralism because there's not, there's, it's not like we're going back to Christendom. There's no perfect models. And so we need to create space where there's different expressions. Um, there's different pieces that make up a society. And in each piece of society, there needs to be transformation. So we, we uphold our families because families matter. Businesses matter. Volunteer organizations matter. Schools and education matters. Medical fields matter. Each one of these has its own integrity apart from the state, but the state also can be transformed. Okay?
Every sphere of life can be handed over to the Lordship of Jesus. How does that sound? Yeah? Sound good? All right, well, let's pray. <laughs> Is there a problem with this one? Sorry? Yeah, not everybody will be on board with that. There's the other issue is um, this idea of Christianity affecting every aspect of life and transforming every area and, and faithful presence and different, that this is, this is what the kingdom of God is all, is all about. Is that really the New Testament view? Or is the New Testament view that the means for transformation is primarily the church? not Mike being a faithful presence in government. And that may matter, but what matters most is the catalysts for change, as we read in the New Testament, is the church, and the church is key, is central to the kingdom of God being, being spread throughout this world. And this seems to actually get away from it. The church doesn't seem to really have much of a role. It's just more about faithful presence in different realms of life. And so what's the role of the church in all this? So these are the five ways, there's probably other ways, that Christians have wrestled with questions of politics. Let me ask you this. Uh, you guys can throw things on, on, on the uh, chat line, which I, which I know you're not going to hesitate to do. Um, which model appears, uh, appeals to you most? How many, okay, so you guys put your, put your numbers up there or whatever you think. How many of you like the uh, sectarian view? Hands up. <laughs> Nobody, one person likes the early church view. Okay, okay, how many of you, oh, I see you too, okay. How many of you like the good old days of Christendom? It's neat, tidy, yeah, okay. Uh, how many of you like the two kingdom view? Ah, interesting. Our Lutheran friends in the back, yeah. <laughs> how about the um, the reform view? The last one, the transformationist view. Ah. How many of you have no idea? <laughs> I see those hands. What do you got? I got transformationist, reform transformationist. What else? Any, 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 uh, any Anabaptists in? No, I didn't skip the Mennonites. Oh, I did, yeah, when I'm saying, yeah. What about the Mennonites? Yes, yes. I did skip the Mennonites. Poor Mennonites, they're always skipped. Okay, yeah. How many, any Mennonites? Yeah, so I saw Don's hand. A few, okay. It's something to think about. Did... Does it make sense? Any, question, any questions in terms of understanding what those five views are? Do you get the feel for each one? Ah, uh, very good, Kevin. Does your view of end times affect which one you might choose? I think it does. I think it does. Um, 
the Reformed view, the transformationist view, is probably most connected to an amillennial view of end times. Or, or maybe, a, maybe an amillennial or a postmillennial. Because the idea is that through faithful presence in different areas of life, you can make society better and better until it's ready for Christ's return, which would be a post-millennialist view. But that, that's a great question, Kevin. Yeah, very good. But not necessarily. Yeah, that's good, Joseph. Yeah. Okay, what I want to do now is just talk about what we're up against. Okay, so these are the five views. What are we... What are we up against? We're up against the modern state. Now, the modern state, the world that we live in, is very, very complex. And the modern state is very complex. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk you through some of the ingredients of the modern state. And then we're going to look at, if these are the ingredients of the modern state, how then, as Christians, should we navigate this? So I'm not going to leave you up in the air. I am going to make a case for a particular approach to politics in the end, okay? So I'm not gonna, not gonna leave you, leave you hanging. I mean, you can totally disagree. I'm sure you will, but that's okay. All right. One of the situations that we face is the Western state, which is shaped by modernity and postmodernity, and there's lots of challenges. One of the challenges that we have in our state is that as a society, we move away from God. Part of the characteristic of the modern world and the postmodern world is that God may exist, but he does not matter. That's one of the characteristics of a secular worldview, a modern worldview. The assumptions in the modern world is theological. And it's the idea that God, if he does exist, does not matter. Through technology, through our own know-how, we can solve all the problems that come our way. Now, one of the consequences of this is that more and more in the modern state, where does our hope lie? In the state. It, it lies in the state. In fact, I would say that the modern world has created a character of a people. It has created and shaped the character of its citizens. And one of the uh, characteristics is that we are a people that demand more and more from the political process. So instead of looking up and finding our hope in God, we are increasingly looking down and pinning our hopes in what the government can or cannot do, or what we can do. Our faith in the state is becoming unshakable. We think to ourselves, if only we could elect the right person to government, if only we can get a certain person out of government, if only we can convince the government the rightness of our protest, then anything can change. We can change the world. This idea of finding hope in the political process, our ultimate hope in the political process, have you seen this at play anywhere in the last couple years? You think about the moment there's a crisis, the moment there's a crisis in, in the Western world, where do we look to first? Something needs to be done. 
the government ought to do something about this. It's, it's incredibly quick now. We saw this recently with the truckers convoy to Ottawa. The government ought to do something about this. Business are being shut down. Bridges are closed. Economic transactions cannot happen. The government needs to do something. There's a, there's a pandemic. The government needs to do something. Now, here's the thing. Turning to the state is not in itself a bad thing. But here's some of the dangers. Some of the dangers is that when, when a crisis happens, we don't look up. The first place we look is not up. Secondly, we place our complete trust in the political realm and we think that the political realm can solve any problem that comes our way. Any problem. And so we put our complete trust in something that's not really completely trustworthy. Now I say this because it's true. I mean, if you look at most politicians, most politicians are ordinary folk who are good at raising money and good at getting votes and but have a hard enough time fixing roads let alone navigating a pandemic right I mean just to be honest and but we put our ultimate hope there the third thing is that the state has grown especially in the West has grown in power the modern state is the largest concentration of human power anywhere you add to this the availability of technological means to sur of surveillance. Um, and we've never seen power quite like this. Power to basically keep tabs of an entire population. There's a growing so, and, and also, we see the expanding responsibilities of the state. Government has grown so fast, and government grows fastest when? When there's a crisis, absolutely. The government will grow exponentially whenever there's a crisis. So World War II, World War I, you think about just the, the economic output that took place in I mean that's one of the I mean it's a whole side issue one of the reasons for the rise of a consumerist culture in the West is because after World War II you had this incredible machine that was creating all of these things but there's not the demand you had an entire world war where people were told go without go without ration 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 and now you have this machine that could produce so much stuff but nobody was buying stuff, and so what do you have to do? You have to create a need, create a want, you manufacture that. And that's where you get the rise of advertisement, consumerist culture, obsolescence. There's a whole story to that. But that comes out of, out of World War II. Um, what do we lose? Well, one, the, the more the government grows in power, what happens is, is you lose some natural authority structures in society, such as family. Family predates the state, the modern state. But families are 
more and more being controlled under this jurisdiction of the government. We talked about Bill C-4, if you know about that bill, that if you counsel your child in a way that may, may violate this, this law, like if you encourage your child to be at peace with her body, um, that could, that could be a violation of this law and land you in prison for five years and the child being taken away. This is a reality of today. Church organized, religious organizations, clubs, all these things more and more are coming under the power of the government. Now, how does the government manage to grow? Well, this is the importance of bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is the machine by which uh, governments grow. And bureaucracies are interesting things. One of the very nature of a bureaucracy is that it'll inherently grow. It just, it takes a life on itself and it's very, very resistant to change. Anybody ever worked for the government or worked in a bureaucracy? I have, I've worked for the government and I remember I was in charge of um, sweeping an area. <laughs> that was my job. I had to sweep and clean this area and I was told I told my, my boss, he says, you know, just, just sweep this room. How much time do I have? Two hours. I'm like, okay, <laughs> what am I going to do after five minutes? Because that's how long it's going to take me. No, it takes two hours, two hours. And I said, well, what about over there? I don't know. Don't go over there. That's Canada Post. I said, it's the same room. Don't go over there. The union will get after you. This is our union. That's their union. I'm like... And so everything stays the same. In a bureaucratic world, um, in, in a bureaucracy, human beings are no longer human. They become numbers or things. Why? Because it's a lot more efficient. Like if I. I Okay, Mike, I know you're Norm, I know your name. But if I had to just remember everybody's name, why not just say one, two, three, four, five, seven, number seven, number 12. I don't need to know your name. I just need to know your number. What's your sin number? That's all I need. I don't care about your name. Just tell me your... And so it's, a, it's inherently depersonalizing. It's, it's supposedly neutral. And so we hear people say, we don't listen to protests, we listen to data, because data is neutral. I'm not saying data is not important, data could be important, but it's, it's a depersonalized understanding of things. The other thing in, in the modern state is that the public square, the square for conversation needs to be naked. And what I mean by that is that if you were to participate in the public realm, you have to leave your personal views behind. So if you're going to work in the government, like if you think about it, if you, if you go to work for a government organization and you start the day and you say, hey, before we get started, why don't we kick things off with a little bit of prayer? How do you think that would go over? No, why? Well, that's your personal view, man. If you want to pray, you pray on your own. This is the government, and the government, we don't pray, we don't do any of those things, because this is, this is a neutral space. Is it neutral? No, not at all. 
it's, it's the, new, the neutral space is a default secular humanism, which is not neutral at all. It, the assumption is God does not exist, he does not matter, and so we do not pray. That's the assumption. But why should that be the assumption? Again. And so the other thing, the implications of all this is that I think our humanity is affected, our freedom is affected. Um, makes it very difficult to live a Christian life in the political realm. It is very difficult, more difficult than it's ever been. Is that true? In the West? I would say so. So then, here comes a big question at 8 o'clock. How do we navigate the political realm? Okay? Now I'm going to give it a shot. You ready? Okay. You guys ready online? You guys have been chatting on your own anyhow, so you're having your own conversation over there. I keep looking and it keeps... That's good. That's all right. I'm glad you guys are having a good conversation. Okay, so how do we approach politics today? We're listening. Thanks, <laughs> I feel affirmed. <laughs> how do we approach politics today? Well, how does a Christian participate in the political realm? Well, let's look at some principles. And I think these are Christian principles that we can agree on. As a Christian, freedom matters. Amen? God is a God who grants us freedom. The very nature of the fact that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we had freedom to say yes or no to what God was calling us to do. So the very nature of, uh, of a boundary, of something being off-limits, is an affirmation, I think, of our freedom. So we need to advocate for freedom. Freedom matters. To be fruitful and multiply, but also to be good stewards over creation, we need freedom. Second thing is caring matters. To care for one another is important. And so we advocate for a government that does not oppress its people, but will show care and compassion, because care and compassion is a universal value for being human. It's part of being human. And so what does that look like? Well, it's what I see happening right now, is we, we have the cold, wet weather mat program. We, we advocate for a government that does not leave the poor destitute and dying on the streets that there's some kind of safety net that a person won't die if, they, if, they're, um, if, they're, if they're sick and they cannot work and they're on the side of the road, there's something that can be done. But they get, it's a little tricky, though, because caring matters. So to protect people, we have vaccine mandates. Or... Or we give people the freedom so that they do whatever they want with their body. That's an expression of care. Now that's where it gets complicated, right? Okay. Yeah. So the seatbelt laws or the smoking laws, and yeah, <laughs> I always laugh because I remember the day 
getting on a plane and smoking in the smoking section and at the back of the plane because, well, I'm in the back. It's not going to bother you guys up front, right? <laughs> right? Are you going to say something? Well, good, yeah. So freedom, freedom, what does freedom mean? The biblical understanding of freedom is not the will to do whatever I want. Biblical understanding of freedom is a freedom to choose the good. That also affirms the inherent dignity of human beings, right? So yeah, it does get it does get tricky. We'll come back to that because I'm going to talk about uh, what government looks like. Again, this 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 may go well or it may not. We'll see. Um, number three. So freedom matters. Caring matters. Number three, equality matters. We need to be a country that cares for all people in society. No one can be sacrificed for the betterment of the greater good. No one belongs at the bottom, enslaved or irretrievably poor. Fourth, everyone matters. We need to be a country where no one is considered a fringe person. No one is on the outside. No one is a second-class citizen. Because our starting point is the inherent dignity of every human being. From a biblical perspective, we believe that the ground is level at the foot of the cross that as Paul writes, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free, female, you're a one in Christ. So those are principles that we hold to, but we also recognize that we live in a world, we live in a world where people are fallen, right? We have a healthy dose of Genesis 3. Every human being is fallen. Uh, Ephesians 2, that we were enemies of God. Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So what are the political implications of Genesis 3? Well, everyone is fallen. Right? You with me? Now, just to hold to that point runs up against how our world typically thinks. In our world today, correct me if I'm wrong, but typically what I see happening is we live in a world where most people would see society being made up of good people and bad people. And politics is all about putting good people and their agendas in power and mitigating the effects of bad people. So keep the vaxxed or the unvaxxed or whatever it happens to be. Now, maybe we wouldn't put it in such crude terms, but that's, when I look at the way dialogue is carried out, you get the sense there's good people and then there's bad people, and the good people must deal with the bad people and the bad people must deal with the good people. But the profound Christian insight is, hey, 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 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us is deeply fallen, but also deeply valuable. And so Christianity affirms that every human being is sacred, but none are good. As C.S. Lewis says in the Chronicles of Narnia, or as Aslan puts it when he says, speaks to this one person, he says, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar 
and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. So what are the implications of Genesis 3? Well, one, we need to be realistic about what politics can achieve. We need to be realists. Honestly, if we are all sinners, and if our wills are bent, and if we are inclined towards self-centeredness, and we desire the things that we shouldn't desire, and we don't desire the things that we ought to desire, if, if that's just our default, then we need to be careful about how much hope we put in our government. We need to be realistic about what we can or cannot expect from politics. Secondly, it also is a warning, thinking that somehow through right legislation we can fix the human problem. And that's what we see happening in government now. There's an issue, there's a problem with, the, with this group of people. They're, they have a, a misguided understanding of sexuality and identity. And so we're going to introduce this law to fix these people so they think correctly. Well, the problem is we, can't, we cannot fix the human problem, can we? Only God can. And I can think of many examples in human history where governments have tried to fix the human problem. But the problem is, is that usually it's fixed at the expense of human beings. Paul Pot had a great idea. He thought, we can, we can, we can transform Cambodia in 1975. We can transform Cambodia. We can, we can make Cambodia into a great nation by enhancing our agricultural realm to bring us to the point of industrialization, which will eventually get us to the point of pure communism and equality. But in order to get there, if you happen to live in the city, if you happen to wear glasses, you are either sent to the countryside, if you wear glasses, you are immediately killed. Mer Rouge. And so there's a lot of governments over history to, to solve problems. They solve problems at the expense of people. And so we need to be careful about that. When we recognize, when we recognize the sinfulness of humanity, it guards us against cynicism. So we can be skeptical. We can be like, yeah, I, Genesis 3 makes me a little skeptical. But we don't become cynical. There's a difference between skeptical and, cynic and cynical. When you're cynical, we just, we throw up our hands. And we say, Psh. the world's going to hell in a handbasket. So I'm either going to do something really bad or I'm just going to check out. And a lot of people throw up their hands and just say, it's corrupt. Everybody's corrupt. There's nothing we can do about it. To hell with it. And we, we withdraw. And we don't participate. The other thing that uh, Genesis 3 helps us, it guards us against idealism. And idealism is worse than cynicism. Because idealism 
Um, idealism is this idea that, that we can solve. <laughs> idealism is this idea that, you know what? You guys all got it wrong. You've all got it wrong. Except Pete, myself, Jean, Lisa, we kind of know what's going on. And we're going to get together and we're going to talk about our plans to change the world because we got these great ideas. The rank and file, the masses, the hoi polloi, they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on. But we do, we do, we, we get it. And so we will we'll be like this little kind of vanguard group that will kind of, because we know what's good for society. And, 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 and don't worry, don't worry, just trust us. We will figure this out. And so there's lots of these groups over, hist over history. There's one guy named Stalin, Lenin, Trotsky. Who was the fourth? Trudeau. <laughs> 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 said Trudeau. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was quite good, though. Okay. <laughs> but the danger of idealism, well, actually, it's, it's interesting. The danger of idealism and ideology is that you don't need to deal with people. You don't need to deal with human beings. You just deal with concepts. And this is the only thing I'll say about our current content. I would say our current prime minister is an ideologue. And he deals primarily with ideas. And not necessarily with people. There's a great character in the book, The Brothers Karamazov. And there's one character who loves humanity. He just loves humanity, but he hates people. And that's a danger. You can love humanity. That's, a, that's an abstract concept. You don't have to deal with a single human being. So ideology is dangerous. What Genesis 3 does, it, it keeps us grounded. It reminds us, no, every human being, our wills are bent in the wrong way. And finally, this sense of Genesis 3 prevents politics. It prevents politics from, from eclipsing every other sphere of life, which is what I see happening now. Whenever, whenever the needs of a society trump the life of an individual, then the language of interaction is the language of power. And more and more, we are becoming a politicized nation. So where do we go from here? Okay. I think as Christians, we need to be cautious about what we can and cannot accomplish through the political process. And it's dangerous. If only, if only we get, you know, I know this Christian leader, he's really good. And he's, he's in politics. If we, if we all vote for him, oh, well, our problems will be solved. He will, get, you know, be careful. Be careful. I'm not against... Voting for someone who's, who's, who's a Christian, who's a good leader and all that, that's, that's fine. But be careful where you put your hope. We need to be cautious. And the other reason why we need to be cautious is that 
is that politics, you need to realize this, is that politics is way downstream from culture. We think we change politics, we can change culture. No, no, no. Politics is the last link in the chain that started a long time before. Cultures change so much and then eventually politics catches up to it. And so we think, oh, we change this political law, that's going to make things better. No, no, no. The cultures change. We need to win hearts and minds through proclaiming the gospel rather than thinking we're going to change this law, you're going to change a person's heart. Right? So when you get back to the question of abortion, you can have different laws, but I think at the end of the day, what matters the most is the one-on-one, the work that pregnancy concerns and these different groups do, working with young mums, saying, look, there's a better way. That's going to get us way further ahead than law, which is downstream. Right? I'm not saying we shouldn't... That, it's ridiculous that Canada is one of the few countries in the world where there are no laws for abortion. There's no law. And nobody wants to touch it. Nobody has the nerve to touch it. Um, So, secondly, we need to recognize the almost universal disaster of political revolutions. (laughs) Whenever there's a revolution, usually it ends with tyranny, dictatorship, and some of them end up with genocide. So be very careful about wanting quick change. It's tempting. It's tempting when you see a government, it's like, oh, I hate this government. Remember, what did the early church do? They practiced patience because revolution is quick, it's easy, and just study the French Revolution and see how well it turns out. And I can list a whole bunch of other revolutions. Look at the, uh, the, the, um, the October Revolution in 1917. You can keep going. Perfect societies are an impossibility. (laughs) We know that, but we need to remember that. No political arrangement will work perfectly. Fourthly, as Christians, our approach ought not to be conservative or liberal. And there's dangers. There's dangers is that we live in a world where we're categorized, right? So, Laura, you're a conservative, right? You're a conservative. And right away, I put you into the box. And you say, but I actually care about the environment. It's like, no, you can't. You're a conservative. That means you hate the environment. Well, no, I don't. Oh, well, which box do you belong in then? Because to be in this box means all this. To be in this box means all this. Well, as Christians, we need to be very careful about those categories. I think as Christians, we should be on the front foot when it comes to caring for the environment. Now, why do you think typically a lot of Christian movements are connected to conservative parties or conservative movements? Why do you think that is? Yeah. So under, underneath what you're saying, Phoebe, is, 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 I think, the key point. Because to be a conservative means you want to slow down rapid change. And we talked about rapid, some of the dangers of rapid change. 
And so when you're a conservative, you want to conserve, um, is not necessarily a bad thing because you want to slow down how quickly things change. The danger is, the danger is, of course, you had a lot of conservatives who are arguing for the maintenance of slavery because that's the tradition in this particular land, is slavery, and so we don't want things to change. Well, okay, hang on. Is that, so conserving just for the sake of conserving is not necessarily a good thing. I think that's typically why, is because there's a hesitation for rapid change. I do think the fifth point is this, is that both the church and state should be limited in their sphere to some degree. It's not a two-kingdom thing, but recognize that the church is not the state and the state is not the church. Um, and that there's different spheres in society. That family has its own authority network. Um, that education has its own authority. Uh, the church has its own authority. Um, it doesn't mean we don't have to follow laws. We do, but these are these... They're, they're different spheres. Not everything needs to be politicized. One last thing, um, one, not the last thing, but one idea, and I would make a case that the best kind of government many of the truths that we read in scripture is the idea of a limited government. I think a limited government What's that? What about Singapore? Singapore would be a dictatorship. Because the person that was the prime minister would always get over 90% of the votes in an election. Yeah, but that... And he planned a community where everyone was included and there was equality and it was safe to walk on the streets. But now it's too sudden to get along, so things are changing. Yeah, like I'm not sure about Singapore as a, as a model. Like it's it's a different context. It's it's an Eastern context, very hierarchical. British. Well, it was it was British, but it's a very hierarchical. And I'm not sure if uh, what was it Lee Kuan Yew is the uh, is is a model for. But anyhow, I'm arguing for a limited government, which is which is quite different. Yeah, hang on, but but I'm, I'm making a, a but I'm making a case, Maxine, right now, just for for a limited government. And what I mean by that is not an individualistic view of society. It's not I'm not thinking like a person like Ayn Rand or anything like that. I used to study with a guy who was. Do you guys know who Ayn Rand is? A little bit. Yeah. Anyhow, I won't go into it. Uh, extreme capitalist, uh, hyper capitalist. Um, but I think a limited government allows individuals as much freedom as possible while still relating to one another. Now, whether or not that could be done in a uh, postmodern world is, 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 is a challenge. But I do think the state, if it allows its people to more or less be left alone to live life, that seems to be in sync with the biblical picture of freedom. There's a, there's some problems still there, but I think it's it's the best it's the best of all the of of all the um, state setup. So I would argue for um, 
what is called liberal democracy. Um, I would argue for a pluralist society. And a pluralist society would say that there are many different voices in society and these voices need to have a say. So in the same way that um, as a Christian, I could say in, in, in a public meeting, say, as a Christian, this is what I hold to be true. Somebody next to me say, yeah, I hear you. As a secular humanist, I think this is true. Okay. As a Muslim, I believe that this is okay. So I think you should have pluralism, not in the sense of, hey, we're all going to get along. We're not going to get along. <laughs> but we can all bring our ideas forward and have the best ideas emerge on top. I see that as, as, as a way forward. Um, and so as Christians, how do we engage in the political sphere? Well, one, we need to be hopeful. And I'll tell you, the last thing, I the last word I would use to describe our world today is hopeful <laughs> with what's going on in Ukraine, what's, what took place in Ottawa last week. Um, hopeful, but as Christians, we live between two advents, the coming of Jesus and his second coming. The kingdom of God is broken into this world. The Holy Spirit has been given. And so I think we need to be hopeful because we know that in the end, Sharon, what does our friend Julian say? All shall be well. All shall be well. And I think we need to be loving. Certainly as the church... Uh, love is to be the standard for our behavior in, in public. Um, we should not be afraid of change, but we should be loving. And we live in the tension of the hope that we have in Jesus, knowing that this world is full of sin, um, and that there's a lot of sin still in our world, but that in the end all shall be well. The other thing is we need to be humble. We all, we need to be humble. There's a limit to what we can actually achieve. We need to recognize that. And we need to be respectful. <laughs> we need to be respectful. Boy, do we need to hear that. See you, Janice. Uh, we need to hear that. Especially in the way we're carrying ourselves online. And I know a lot of people are angry. And I'm... I'm I'm, I'm there too, just so you know, like these past events in this past couple weeks have brought up a lot of anger. I see a lot of things happening in our country that I'm very angry and upset about. But we need to be respectful. Because every person you lock eyes with, even the person you don't really like, is made in the image of God. And has dignity and value. And so we need to be careful about being sucked into public arguments where we say things that maybe we shouldn't say. I think we should not be afraid of the public realm. We need to lean in and, and, and not just re, re, retreat into our private spheres. And we need to resist the pressure to place our Christian faith on the margins and out of the public sphere, which is a lot easier to do. Hey, we'll just do church. Just leave us alone. We'll just do our thing. You do your... No, we need... If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of all. Every single human being needs to hear of the Lordship of Jesus Christ.
But we need to do that in a winsome way. And we need to be compassionate. And wherever we find ourselves, whatever situation we find ourselves in, we need to make the best of things. Think about your work. Think about wherever God has you. You need to make the best of things. And so to be a Christian in our world today is really, really difficult. It's very difficult. And the landscape today is so polarized. My heart was so heavy when I was preparing this today. Because I just, like it's, I've never felt this kind of anxiety and stress and division in all my years living in Canada. I've never seen this. I grew up with Trudeau Sr. and I grew up with the Joe Clarks and the John Turners and the Brian Mulroney's and all that. Like I grew up with all that and there's there's clashes but not like what I'm seeing today. Is it exacerbated through technology and social media? I think so. I think that's the difference. But the thing is, if we, if we operate as Christians, you just need to be ready. That if you truly operate as a Christian, you're in, you're in territory where you, you will be shot at from both sides. You just will. And it's easier to hunker down with a side. Okay, I'm with these guys. At least I'm with a, a group and we're safe. But no, no, to be a Christian is, is, is you know, as Bonhoeffer say, when, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And the way of Jesus is a way that will get you shot from one side or the other. And so as Christians, we need to resist falling into cynicism, which is very easy, very tempting. We know where history's going. We know that Jesus is, is Lord. And so we need to resist becoming discouraged along the way. And so many Christians are struggling over the government since COVID began. And it's ugly stuff. But at the end, our lives are not our own, right? We do not belong to ourselves. Right? We belong to Jesus. And we are to live as ambassadors of Jesus Christ in the world, caring for the world but not occupying ourselves with things too great or marvelous for us, but to live in such a way as to live as Christ, to die as gain. So I don't know if that helps, but maybe it helps frame the conversation a little bit. Um, there's, uh, let, let me, what I'm going to do, Norm, is I'm going to close our time because I, I'm, I'm guessing there, there'll be some questions. I can see. I'm looking forward to reading over the chat tonight. <laughs> See, see the conversation, but I'm going to close our time in prayer, and then uh, if we have some questions, we can go from there, but we, we're at the end of our time, but I want to give you guys an opportunity to ask a few questions. So Lord, we, we do say, come Lord Jesus, come. Our lives uh, only make sense if they're walking with you, Lord. You are Lord of the universe, Lord of this world, Lord of all realms, and forgive us for the way we carry ourselves in public. And lead us in a way, in a way that is life-giving. Help us be winsome, to be hopeful. Help us to be respectful and humble and loving and compassionate and to make the best of all things. That's our desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. 
You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.